Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Trudeau's chief of staff has agreed to testify before one of the committees investigating the extent of Chinese government interference in Canada's elections. Why is this so important for the opposition parties? We'll get into that. And what has David Johnson been tasked with now that he has this title of special rapporteur? We'll talk about the range of his investigation. And also the Greenbelt battle may not be over. Phil Pothin, Ontario Environment Program Manager for Environmental Defense, will join us to talk about why. It's all coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. On this side of the border and on this side of the ocean, uh, well, with big news about what's going on in Ottawa. Uh, with, uh, first of all, the budget that's coming up in just a, a few days now. And secondly, uh, the announcement yesterday that uh, the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, will actually appear before a committee that is looking into the issue of foreign involvement in our election process. Uh, Global's uh, Chief Political Correspondent, David Aiken, explains why the opposition parties have been so hot to get Ms. Telford up in front of them. The opposition believes that... <laughs> You know, Telford is the prime minister's chief of staff and is his longest serving and most trusted political advisor. And therefore, she has crucial information about what the prime minister was told about election interference and when he was told about it. The opposition is trying to prove that Trudeau turned a blind eye to warnings by security officials about alleged interference by China because the liberals stood to benefit from that interference. Either the prime minister was completely asleep at the switch, or he allowed it to happen because it benefited the Liberal Party. Which is it? Now, for their part, the PM and other Liberals say that's nonsense. The Conservatives are trying to uh, gin up the toxicity and partisanship by making political theater out of it. I think it's very important to note as well that right now there is no evidence from any agency that this alleged interference changed any election outcome. Now, as for Telford, she is expected to testify sometime in mid-April. So uh, thank you to David Aiken for that. So what are the implications of this? And uh, is, is this going to be the, uh, the shining moment for the opposition parties to finally get their aha moment? Or is it just uh, much ado about nothing? Joining us to talk about this and other developments uh, in Ottawa, uh, pleased to welcome back to the program, Daniel Beland, who is the director of the McGill Institute for the Study of Canada. Uh, Daniel, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for the time today. My pleasure. Uh, thanks for the invitation. Your, your reaction, first of all, to the announcement uh, that uh, Ms. Telford will uh, finally appear before this committee. It's not going to be until mid-May, of course. Uh, the, this is the key thing here. I mean, at one point, there was uh, a motion that was going to be put forward by the parliament that was going to suggest or demand that she be there. And the, the prime minister hinted that that might even be a, a confidence vote. They backed away from that, as a matter of fact. But uh, is, is her testimony going to be that important to, to finding exactly what's going on or what has gone on here? Well, I'm a bit skeptical about this. Of course, we will know the proof is in the pudding, but mm -hmm. uh, certainly I understand why the opposition uh, uh, wants uh, to grill her because that's what will happen. This will be like, really, they will uh, not hold <laughs> their fire. I think that this, this is for them, uh, especially for the conservatives. It's a great political opportunity to really... Um, create some embarrassment for the Trudeau government. Now, it might not work, but they will try. And yes, they want to know um, when the prime minister, uh, what the prime minister knew and when. But of course, uh, Katie Delford might not tell them that. First of all, she might just um, be able to uh, use this, uh, this you know, reality that a lot of the things that we are talking about here are 
top secret, right? So she cannot, mm-hmm. there are things that she can't talk about uh, in, in public. And so that's very important. So we see how much she can say and how much she will say. But certainly um, opposition MPs on the committee will be really prepared uh, to have, you know, um, uh, really to have this show because this will be a political show. But will it actually lead to new information? Uh, I'm not sure at all. Uh, but the, I think an, something that the opposition sees an, as an opportunity overall is they hope that perhaps Katie Telford could stumble or, you know, say something that could then be used against the prime minister. So uh, it would be really hard for uh, Katie Telford. She will be on the spot, obviously. And she will have to be, and she will be very careful about what she uh, she says for that reason. And that's the key element to this too, isn't it? The the, the political theater aspect of it, I guess, Daniel. Uh, because as you mentioned, and I'm sure she's going to be relying on the fact that this is this is both for the the phrase I guess we're used to using here is top secret information to, to a large extent. It's all about national security. Uh, and uh, she's not going to be forthcoming, I would think, with an awful lot of that information, notwithstanding the kind of questioning she's going to get. This is not just like you know, investigating you know, where the prime minister went for his Christmas vacation or something. We're talking about uh, security issues here that uh, that I don't think are going to see the light of day, do you? That's right. No, I agree with you. No, it, it's That's what I said earlier, that um, I think that um, Katie Telford will <laughs> will be able to answer maybe some questions, but probably not others. And of course, the opposition would be frustrated about this and perhaps also quite a few members of the public. But yes, this is a national security issue, foreign interference uh, in our elections. Uh, I think it's something we have to take seriously. But um, yes, so there are there are things that cannot be uh, discussed uh, in public. And of course, uh, Katie Telford knows that very well. She's highly experienced. Also, of course, there is the politics of this because, yes, it will be political theater. And she also knows what not to say uh, in order to uh, protect uh, uh, the prime minister because, yes, she's the chief of staff. So she's a, she's a partisan animal. She's a liberal, right? And so uh, there are a mix of two imperatives for her. There is the national security aspect of this, but there is also, of course, the, the tactical, you know, political um, uh, environment she has to navigate in a very careful way um, because she wants to protect uh, Justin Trudeau. We've talked in the past about the political strategies that go into this, uh, and sometimes it's, it's announcements or musings. Uh, the one that the, the Prime Minister made, of course, uh, about this particular uh, incident was, look, maybe we're going to make this a non-confidence motion. I, I get the sense that that was really trying to back uh, Jagmeet Singh into a corner because Singh actually seemed to be siding with the Conservatives here. They know we need to get to the bottom of this. The inquiry has to happen. Katie Telford has to had to go. And he was... if. There was a possibility that he was going to support that motion. I think the prime minister pretty much took that sword out of his hands, didn't he? When he said, "If it's going to be a confidence motion, do you really want to bring down the government, Mister Singh?" Yeah, no. This would have been a really dramatic moment. Uh, I, I think that uh, it, the, the obviously the liberals probably think they probably think it's not the right moment to have elections. If you look at the polls, uh, they are probably right. Uh, look at where the conservatives are right now in most of the polls, at least not all. Uh, so yes, they, uh, they they decided to avoid this test, uh, and this would have been a difficult situation not only potentially for the liberals but also for the NDP. And and so yes, uh, in the end, you have uh, no confidence vote on this, 
And you have Katie Telford who will uh, testify, but in the end, she might not say that much. Going on at the same time, of course, uh, will be the investigation, uh, for lack of a better word, I guess, uh, by uh, Mr. Johnson uh, about what was going on with foreign in, uh, interference, etc. cetera. Uh, as a matter of fact, we're expecting that he's going to probably announce the, the the final elements of, of his report just around the same time that uh, Telford's going to appear before this committee. Uh, are they working at cross purposes here? Well, I think the issue in, in, in terms of the delayed testimony of Katie Telford and the appointment of uh, David Johnson as a rapporteur, a special rapporteur uh, on, on foreign electoral interference is really to, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, get to, to, to basically uh, uh, delay, uh, have a bit more time to think about what's happening. Maybe uh, they hope that uh, other issues, other things will happen that will divert public attention and media attention away from this uh, by the time we are in in the, the mid-spring. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of things can happen in, 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 in politics in just a couple of months, right? Um, but certainly uh, that's a strategy and it's all about time and delaying uh, what is likely to happen or at least what many people want, which is uh, a public inquiry into this. Um, and so, so this is just kicking the, the ball further afield, right? Um, but, uh, in, in the end, it might be hard to avoid this public inquiry that, uh, so many people are, uh, asking for. Given the, the, the pushback that the prime minister has received by actually even appointing David Johnson to this post though, Daniel, uh, is it inevitable that he's going to come back and say, okay, you, you, we're going to have to have this inquiry? I mean, uh, to do anything else, he's, he's just going to, I think, well, in some people's minds anyway, uh, validate Mr. Polyev's uh, assertions that this is just a, you know, a, a sham, that, that Johnson's on his on Trudeau's side through this whole thing. Is, is that forcing uh, David Johnson into a corner to, to, to suggest that this inquiry has to go forward? Well, you know, by accepting this to, do, to become the special rapporteur, I think he... Uh, he exposed himself to uh, all these criticisms. I think that the liberals were a bit uh, too clever. They thought, oh, you know, this is someone who was, you know, appointed as governor general by Stephen Harper. And so we can just, you know, appoint him. And then the conservatives will not be able to really be that assertive and critical of that nomination. But of course, um, the, the the conservatives uh, uh, were... Uh, Remain on the attack mode uh, about Mr. Johnson and uh, Johnston and and his ties to the Trudeau Foundation and to, of course, uh, the, the Trudeau family more generally. So you know he's in a very difficult uh, situation, in very difficult position. And if there is no uh, public inquiry, regardless of who the reporter is, uh, you know the conservatives won't be happy, and many people in the media, social media, will criticize the government for not moving forward. Right. So Justin mm -hmm. Trudeau said he will do what the reporter says. But if the reporter uh, does not recommend a public inquiry, uh, uh, we might still have a public inquiry later on. Right. If there are more revelations, more leaks in the media or this issue doesn't go away. Right. So it might be here about delaying the inevitable for uh, the prime minister. Let's talk about the timing, if we could, though, Daniel. Johnston's report's going to come out, he says, May 23rd. Uh, and there's some argument as to whether or not that's even enough time to, to you know, look under all the rocks that he probably wants to look under. But let's take him at that date, May 23rd. Uh, 
is, is there a chance that even if he recommends an, an inquiry uh, that they may wait until the fall? I mean, they're not going to do much of the stuff over the summer break, are they? Well, we will see if it's a public inquiry. They might at least, uh, you know, uh, uh, appoint someone and start some of the groundwork. Uh, yeah. Again, I think there is, a, I'm not sure if it's a stalling tactic, but certainly an attempt to delay all of this, um, all this this discussion and, and the advent of a, the implementation of a potential inquiry. Um, but, you know, this story will not go away. I think there is still some people who think it might go away. Uh, and, and of course, if there is a huge, you know, international development or something at home that happens, we might not talk about this as much as we are now, but uh, in, say, in, in, in June or July. But I suspect that we'll still be talking about this in a way or another come summer. Well, I, and I guess what the government's hoping for right now is that maybe this will take this, you know, this story, as you say, off the front pages of the newspapers uh, and focus on the president's visit, uh, you know, coming up tomorrow. Uh, you know, in other words, uh, uh, yeah, you know, my chief of staff's going to testify. Uh, David Johnson's starting his investigation. Let's just let this thing go right now. I don't know if the media is going to let that happen. And I don't think the opposition parties are going to let that happen either. They absolutely won't. The opposition will be relentless about this, uh, relentless about this. So especially the conservatives, the bloc, the NDP, they are a bit in a more, it's a bit a complicated situation for them because of their uh, uh, supply and confidence agreement with the with the liberals. So it's a bit harder for Jack Mead Singh. Um, but I think for the conservatives and the bloc, but especially the conservatives, this is a, they see that as a great political opportunity to keep embarrassing Justin Trudeau and, and the liberals. And and in a way, by appointing David Johnston and I, by you know kicking the, the 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 ball further afield, Justin Trudeau might actually do harm to his own cause because we might be talking about this for longer just mm-hmm. because of these delaying tactics. So in the end, um, you know, I suspect that the opposition will not stop talking about this, uh, and 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 certainly uh, I think the media will will continue to talk about this again. If there is a major, major dramatic international or domestic development, this issue might be pushed aside for a while. But overall, I think that it's on the agenda. Uh, it's, on, it's on the agenda to stay. I, I agree totally. And we'll explain that to our listeners in just a couple of minutes. Daniel, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for this today. You're most welcome. Have a wonderful day. You too. Daniel Bilan, the director of the McGill Institute of the Study of Canada. And uh, boy, it's a lot to study about Canada these days, especially on the political front. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's uh, focus in on what Mr. Johnson is going to be doing here. David Johnson, of course, uh, has received his mandate from the prime minister yesterday. Uh, some are questioning about how long this investigation should take uh, and just how extensive it can be in, in the period of time that's uh, been allotted. Uh, to comment on that, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Michael Kempa, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us again today. Great. Thank you, Bill. Michael, the time that they talked about, both the Prime Minister and, and Mr. Johnson yesterday, was uh, May 23rd, which in some people's minds is not really enough time to uh, look after every rock and under every rock to find out exactly what's going on. Is, is this going to be a, a very protracted exercise, or do you feel he's got enough time and enough resources uh, to get to the bottom of this? Well, the way I read it is, by May 23rd, uh, Mr. Johnson should have made enough progress to basically decide, is this a set of questions that he's capable of addressing on his own and with the existing mechanisms, or does he find that he's so swamped by the middle of May 
that this has to go to a formal independent inquiry. So it's not that he has to have it wrapped up. He just has to basically decide if he can get to the bottom of it by the fall. And if not, it's definitely over to an inquiry. So that's that's really, I guess, the drop dead date as far as the government is concerned. Uh, and uh, the questions, I guess, are going to be resources. Uh, you know, I don't want to create the picture here that he's going to be sucked away, tucked away in an office in the corner of the parliament buildings there with all these papers in front of him. Uh, he must have some resources. I, I would think some staff assistance to try to to go through some of this stuff. Well, if you take a look at contrasted with the work of the Public Order Emergencies Commission, they had a slightly longer time frame and they had an enormous staff working for them, researchers, lawyers, academics, and so forth, advising them, and they barely made their time frame of one year. Here we've got an issue that is equally, if not more complex, much more complex than the simple freedom convoy issues that we faced with the Public Order Emergencies Commission. We're looking at foreign interference on the part of the PRC, the uh, Communist Party of China, other foreign states such as Russia, Iran, etc., and how they got involved in not only the 2019 and 21 elections, but generally the history of their efforts to disrupt the Canadian political process. You're absolutely right. This can't be Mr. Johnson squirreled away in a little corner office in the Justice Department or something. He's got to have a staff and he's got to have the resources to get to this in a reasonable time frame. There are other things going on here, as we know. Mr. Johnson's going to have his work cut out for him. Uh, but as you've talked to us in the past, I mean, there are other agencies that are, are, are looking into this matter, too. You mentioned the National Security and Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians. Uh, National Security and Intelligence Review Agency uh, are also been charged now to identify any outstanding issues requiring attention. Uh, and is, is, I guess, is this overkill here? I mean, to have so many different committees and so many different uh, investigations ongoing at the same time? No, because there's so many pieces to pour through. And I think the idea of the rapporteur really is to straddle on top of that and keep an eye on what each of them is doing to make sure that they're not duplicating their work. And also then if anything is missing in their analysis, either Mr. Johnson and his staff will do it or that would become the focus of an inquiry. We're looking to avoid duplication here. And frankly, make sure that these different committees and groups are properly sharing information and coordinating with each other because there has not been a good history of that on this file or any intelligence file um, going back for years. Well, that's uh, one of the ongoing problems, and I would imagine, Michael, it's got to be one of the first things that, uh, that Mr. Johnson would probably have to to, to identify and, and you know talk about is is the lack of communication. I mean, what this whole incident seems to point out once again uh, is that sometimes in government, especially in Ottawa, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. Well, that's very often the case, and that is allegedly the motivation of the security professional who leaked all of this information to the Globe and Global News uh, over the last months, where they said, we've had this information for a long time, we passed it up the chain. We felt that it wasn't either reaching the ears of decision makers or that decision makers were taking no action having heard it. And therefore, if you read the, uh, I'm sure you have the op-ed of the individual who leaked, he claims or she yeah. claims that this was their motivation um, for the leaks to begin with. And then we can't also forget that, I mean, politics just permeates this process. Although uh, political actors along the way have probably acted, hopefully, within the national interest, the way they handle it now will be heavily influenced by their own partisan considerations. 
is it inevitable, Michael, that we're going to have the inter- independent inquiry? I, I mean, is this really just, you know, pretext for what is to follow here? I mean, I, I can't see Mr. Johnson coming back in, in May and saying nothing to see here. We know there's something to see. We just don't know how extensive it is. It's going to be tough for him to do that. I mean, if you look at the history, uh, Mr. Johnson has not been a fan of public inquiries. He didn't want to go there uh, when we were looking at previous issues around uh, 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 scandals with the with the Mulroney government. But it has come out now, and of course the opposition parties have made a huge amount of hay out of the issue, that Mr. Johnson has uh, familial ties with uh, the Trudeau family and a professional association with the Trudeau Foundation being a member of its board. Now, for me and many others, I had a bit of an emotional reaction to that. I don't like that sort of thing. Uh, you know, from, for example, myself as a professor, if I was a co-applicant on a grant application with one of my colleagues down the hallway, and subsequently that colleague was being, uh, there was some sort of panel to review their professional conduct, I would have to recuse myself from that panel, not because we're great close personal friends, but we simply have that close professional association. So for me and many others, there's a bit of a reaction there saying, well, perhaps Mr. Johnson, as excellent a person as he may be, is not the one to do this very complicated work. But we now are where we are. The opposition parties will continue to howl about that as as they probably should. That's their role. But I would say, all right, Mr. Johnson is carrying out this work. He must be aware that everybody is now looking at him as a potential friend of the Trudeau family and Trudeau Foundation. He had better cross every T and dot every I through this process and in his report, or people will just dismiss it as letting the government off the hook by a close personal friend. So if anything, he might have to autocorrect and be a little tougher in his assessment over the next couple of months. If they go down that road, and I guess we're getting into the hypothetical here just a little bit, and, and he does recommend this, how do you form I, 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 an inquiry like this, uh, Michael, if they want to take it to that next step? I mean, even just the appointment of Mr. Johnson got so much flack uh, from the media, from the opposition parties. Uh, you know, somebody who is quote-unquote independent and, and quote-unquote objective, uh, are, are there anybody, any people like that in Ottawa these days, Michael? I, I'm not sure where to turn. Oh, and that's part of it. A part of the reaction to Mr. Johnson, I think, is, well, at least for me, and I, I think I, I'm, I'm probably sharing this sentiment with a lot of Canadians, is a lot of us simply get tired of the kind of revolving carousel of familiar elite faces that seem to pop up every time there's a crisis as the people who are going to put out the flames, the people who are appointed to these commissions, these inquiries, these reviews. And there is a real sentiment, as evidenced in the Freedom Convoy movement, that people are tired of being governed by elites. So whatever, that's my bias. I've got to get over that and say, here they are. Can we find people who will define an appropriate way to review foreign interference? Mr. Johnson has that task. If he comes forward and clearly explains to everyone, here is how the existing committees and groups are analyzing the problem. There is nothing missing. Along this time frame, you will get these answers. Or if he says, here is what is missing, and therefore we are defining an inquiry very specifically to focus on these specific questions, hopefully people can accept that. But if we just sort of get a general sort of fuzzy blanket statement of nothing to see here, or, well, we'll just have a little bit of an inquiry without much of a clear explanation for where we're going, 
I don't think people are any longer prepared to simply accept the word of elites in our society. Absolutely. Uh, Michael, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for this. Really appreciate your perspective on this matter. Thank you kindly, Bill. Take care. Michael Kemp, Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. And isn't it great that we can build a community and people can go over there and walk through these parks? So I have I have no problem with it. It shouldn't slow down uh, our, our development uh, plans. It's adjacent. It's not uh, it's not right there. But uh, good luck to them. That's uh, Premier Doug Ford. Uh, Referencing a, an announcement made yesterday by the federal environment minister about uh, undertaking a study into uh, some of these incursions into the green belt, uh, and uh, I'm not so sure if uh, the premier is believing everything he's saying there that this is no big deal. It could well be. We're talking about an area called Rouge National Urban Park, and uh, Minister Guilbeau has decided that uh, it's worthy of a study to understand just what these housing developments that the Ford government is going to allow in there. Uh, what kind of an impact it's going to have on the green belt and on ecosystems. Uh, those studies can take a little bit of time, and, and who knows where it might lead. Uh, joining us to talk about this is uh, Phil Pothin. Phil is the uh, Environment Program Manager uh, for the uh, Environment Defense Organization. Uh, Phil, first of all, thanks for, uh, on a busy day, thanks for jumping on with us today. Really appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Uh, we've said this a thousand times, and I'll say it a thousand and one then. Uh, I know the premier would like to put this behind him and say, you know, my, my, the, my flip-flop on the green belt, that's, that's in the rearview mirror, it's gone. I don't think this is going to go away. And I think uh, this announcement by the, uh, the federal environment ministry uh, may have a lot more to do with what's going to happen or not happen in the green belt. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is one of those moments where uh, we are, first of all, believed that the federal government is doing its job. And while it can be frustrating at a time, this is one of those moments when we can be grateful that we have a federal system. You know, this is probably going to boil down to a jurisdictional issue, I would think, as to who actually has the the right to, to, to determine policy and environmental policy here. Yeah. So, I mean, even if the Green Belt had never existed, Canada would have a freestanding federal duty and jurisdiction to protect Duffins Rouge for destruction. It, it's clear that, you know, the Ontario government is intent on abdicating its responsibilities to protect farmland and provincial species at risk and clean water. But that doesn't, fortunately in our system, get the federal government off the hook for doing things that it would have to do anyway, like safeguard federally listed species at risk and prevent harm to wildlife and natural ecosystems within a national park. Uh, so it's crystal clear that the federal government, in our view, has the power and the obligation to intervene here. And, and as I said, even if the provincial government had never done anything to protect these lands, that would still have been through. So that, you know, the, any idea that there's a genuine conflict of jurisdiction here is just nonsense. And it's worth noting, you can ask the official opposition, uh, you know, not we're not talking, this is not an interprovincial jurisdiction issue. The official opposition uh, in Ontario agrees wholeheartedly that this is squarely within federal jurisdiction. Well, and, and let's talk about the process here. And and what Mr. Uh, Minister Jabot is talking about here is is basically, as you say, uh, I, I guess as, as one critic mentioned yesterday, they're going to do the homework that the provincial government should have done uh, about incursions into the green belt and, and the impact that it's going to have on ecosystems, et cetera, because I'm not so sure that they have a body of evidence to substantiate that. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they don't. Uh, so if the federal government goes through with this study, as, as the minister is suggesting they're going to, 
Uh, does that pause the development here? Because, I mean, you know, I know the Ford government would like to get shovels in the ground there right away. Uh, and from what you're telling us, it sounds as if the federal environment ministry has every right uh, and maybe even a responsibility to say, hit the pause button here, Mr. Premier. Yeah, so it's important to understand what's going on here is the federal government doing exactly the right thing, the thing that it can and should be doing at this moment, which is starting the study. Uh, the way federal impact assessment process works is uh, the minister's best opportunity to intervene is triggered when <coughs> a specific proposal gets on the table, when uh, the there's either a demolition permit or a... Uh, uh, a tree removal permit or some kind of bulldozing or soil removal permit on the table or even a, a full development application on the table so that at that point, the minister would impose an impact assessment, which would not allow that activity to go ahead until there has been federal approval, essentially. And so that is the trigger. So that moment hasn't happened because the Ford government is talking a big game about this site. But we don't even have any notion of what anyone is proposing to build. It's just an announcement the government has made and uh, protections that have been removed, but no concrete housing proposal yet. And, and again, you're right. In the absence of details comes speculation. But uh, but there are some, I guess, uh, some overarching elements to this as well. And, uh, you know, because we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, but a couple of weeks ago, we were driving up to, to see our daughter up in Barrie. And, uh, of course, if you're going up the 400, and you know this, Phil, uh, as you get to Highway 9 there, on either side is the gorgeous Holland Marsh, uh, you know, one of the most incredible agricultural areas in this country, to be sure. And and I know that they're going to build a Highway 1, and Highway 413 is not too far from there, and the Bradford Bypass, another major project, is right on the cusp of this. Now, I'm not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination, but I can't understand or I can't fathom that those two projects aren't going to have some kind of an impact on water tables and, and the viability of, of that particular area in agricultural future. And I'm not even talking about ecosystems over and above that, but isn't that information oh, that we should Listen, have before road, we start going like, there? High traffic roads? And agriculture don't mix. Uh, you see, when that ha you, you you cut eco uh, agricultural systems up, you cut ecological systems up. If you want to keep agriculture, if you want to keep uh, vital ecosystems alive, uh, the key is to keep your homes out of them, and to keep our our uh, our roads out of them, and focus our growth on neighborhoods that have already been developed to some extent. That's really what we've got to do. There's no argument about that anymore among people who are, are talking earnestly. And the government is literally uh, willfully ignoring everything we know about how to build communities sustainable, but also how to build them in a way that's cost effective and that's going to allow us to actually reach that 1.5 million homes target the government keeps talking about. Let's be clear. In pushing to open up the Duffins Rouge lands, the government is doing something that it knows very well will make it harder to reach that 1.5 million home target because every home that would get built in Duffins Rouge would be more than one home that doesn't get built in the land that's already set up for development in Durham, which is the Seton land. Seton is a very efficient land use pattern. It's ready and service for development and it hasn't been getting consumed. So, we are just displacing efficient housing that can be built quickly uh, in order to accelerate this uh, housing that's going to produce a very small number of homes uh, in a very expensive form and cause huge ecological destruction. It, it's real. 
it's just mind-boggling uh, how thin the government's pretext for doing this. It's really just about enriching a few landowners who need a favor. And I know that some people are going to argue that, well, you know, there are some provisions you can make to try to make, uh, you know, these projects, whatever they're going to be, uh, more environmentally friendly. And and I guess there's that can happen, but I don't get the impression that, that that's uh, high on the priority list here. They just seem, you know, the, the premier keeps saying, we just got to get homes going, got to get homes built. And it doesn't seem to be a whole lot of concern about the, the sensitivity to ecosystems, which, you know, I don't need to remind you, is, is one of the reasons the Greenbelt was initiated in the first place, to try to protect that. It's worth saying all of the things that we're discussing have always been mitigation. We have never had success in developing neighborhoods and uh, leaving a patch or a strip of wetland or uh, or river uh, alone and have it fully function as habitat. We have to do what we can to mitigate it, and those are good policies. But it's worth noting, A, they never fully work, and B, now that they've actually been removed. You know, the provincial government has removed the power of conservation authorities to protect those lands at all. So any idea that people have of how it has been possible to at least mitigate the damage in the past, it's not true anymore. The government has removed those provisions. So what we are talking about is a highly destructive uh, course of action that's unnecessary because there are already lands right next door to this site. I mean, Physically, in, in the same neighborhood, this is a bit of an isolated site, but they, they would serve the same people in Seton, ready to go to do this in a sustainable way. Well, uh, we'll see what next steps are going to be here. And I, I take the Premier's comments at face value, I suppose, but I get the intention that uh, the federal minister is uh, sincere in his efforts to try to get to, to the bottom of this and deal with fact as opposed to uh, speculation. So uh, I'm yeah, sure more conversations. Sincere on the environment and sincere on housing as well. This is not a yeah. question of housing versus the environment. It's a question of a government that is taking this problem in earnest and a government that is using housing as just a pretext to do things unrelated to increasing housing supply. Well, and it's worth reminding our listeners, I guess, too, that uh, the Premier's own committee that he struck about a year or so ago to look into housing uh, said he did not have to go into the Green Belt. It was totally unnecessary. So uh, that's another fact, I guess, has to be uh, put into this discussion. Phil, as always, appreciate your input into this. I know we're going to talk more about this down the road, but thanks for the time today. Thank you very much. Take care. Phil Pothin from uh, Environment Defense. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.